morning, it's going to be an extension probably for several weeks. This is going to be the upper room part two. Uh, what we learned last week about the upper room, we're going to pick up and carry on. Um, there's a lot that happened there, and it, all of it is very, I think, important not only to us as Christians, but I think it meant a lot to Christ that he wanted to, in the last minute, um, get his points, if you would, or his instruction to his disciples that they would need in the future for their lives. Amen? And if you got a prescription or a uh, diagnosis from uh, the doctor that says uh, you only got three more days to live, what would you be worried about doing? Go watch the Reds? No, no, that's, nobody's interested in that. Uh, would you be interested in going down to see how the Bengals are doing on their draft? No, I don't think that's going to. But what you'd want to probably do is call those in around you, your loved ones, and you'd want to sit down with them and let them know, here's some things I'd like to see carried on after I'm gone, or my legacy, or however you want to look at it. That, not you, Paul. You wouldn't even worry about cutting the grass, would you? All right. But anyway, I think that's some of the motivation behind what Jesus is doing in the upper room. Amen? Now, I know about uh, me, I already got my final will prepared, and if the kids keep talking, they're going to be taken out of it, but that's another subject. All right. Here we have in John the 13th chapter where we stopped last week, if you want to turn there, but make sure you have a bulletin with you because I'm going to give a lot of things that you might want to write down that you're not um, going to hear me read or Mike's not going to have them to put up on the bulletin board. So um, we want to look at John the 13th chapter, so let's uh, turn to the Lord in prayer and take off. Father, we thank you again for your goodness. Thank you for all you do for us. ask that you would just guide us through the word this morning and help us to be what you want your people to be. It was important to Jesus, so important, that he took time to make sure everything lined up with your perfect will in his life and then passed on to his followers and what they needed to do to carry on the work after he was gone. So we ask, Lord, that you would again bless the word this morning and take it into our hearts that we might be those followers that do the will that you've given your people to do. So bless us hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know all of this is important to Jesus. If it hadn't been important, did he, you want to know something about it? Let me just read the first verse. Well, let me read the first three verses of John, and then we'll, we'll cover a lot of things here. Now before the, the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come. Now stop and think about that. He knew what was ahead. Why did he stick around? Why didn't he, I'm out of here, boys. Thursday night, I ain't going to the Mount Olives where they're going to come and betray me with swords and tie me up and take me down to a fake trial and do it at night where it's illegal and pass laws that's illegal and make me conform to stupid stuff and then hang me on a tree the next day. He knew, but it didn't change his agenda. Amen? Think about that. So he knew his hour was come that he should depart out of this world Unto his Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil now, the dev devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, son of, uh, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God, and he went to God. And we're going to stop right there. We've got to set the stage before we move any farther. All right? So in the first verse, in the upper room study, first of all, this verse helps us set up, if you would, what we want to see as a timeline in the last few hours of the life of Christ. You have to kind of keep things in order so you'll get a better understanding of why or when or how or all that stuff. So what we need to know was when. Well, we know now when the Passover meal was over. 
That's the wind. Where? Well, we know it was still in the upper room. Now all we've got to figure out is the why. Well, he said it's because of the Father's will. Amen? So at this evening meal, answers, uh, the evening meal being over. Let's think about that because in your Bible, in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, all take place in the upper room between time dinner was over and time they went out to the hillside to get some rest. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? I told you he had a lot of things he wanted them to understand. But he has to do it systematically because verse 2 said one of them the devil's got a hold of. Now he's got to deal with that before we can move on with other things. You see what I'm saying? Amen. So he knew his hour was to come. Physically, he knew he was going to leave this world. But spiritually, his ministry is about over and he's going to have to trust that his teachings have rooted in the lives of the disciples to have complete understanding that they will also do the will of God and carry on what was needed in this world to move forward and let the world know about God and his will for every human being's life. I heard this week on TV, I don't hear much TV because we was gone most of the weekend, but uh, we took off Friday and didn't come back till late last night. But I did hear on one of the channels while I was out of town that there's a statistic out there that only, we're talking about the 4th of July, there's only 39% of the people that say they're American say they're proud to be an American today. Did you know that? 39%. I would say that probably, I don't, ask you to raise your hand, but I'd say that percentage would probably be a little bit higher in this setting here. Now, roll back 11 years ago, they took the same survey. And it was almost 80% of people were proud of America 11 years ago, where it's 39. So it cut in half. From 80 to 40, if you would, that's half, right? Only half as many people are proud of America now. What happened in those 11 years? Oh, think about it. Go back. Start looking around. See the things that are causing people to turn their back. Well, you know what? Jesus probably was quick enough to know, I better teach them now because if they have to learn it from the Sanhedrin, they're going to miss the boat. Amen? So, uh, with the insight that Jesus had, he went on to teach a lot of the things in the last, if you would, hours of his life. I mean, um, I don't know what time you eat supper, and I really don't even know what, if you would, time of day it was tradition to eat the Passover meal. But I know it was the evening meal. It was the dinner meal. It was just before you went to bed. Let's just say it that way, pretty much. I realize there's more to do after the meal. Uh, you've got to catch up on uh, things around the house and clean up the kitchen and whatnot. But it's getting close to bedtime when you get up from the dinner table for the most part. Hopefully, we too have faithfully walked uh, with God and want to do his will in our lives so that we can say, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's what Jesus said about his disciples. Amen? Verse number one. That's the final line of it. So verse two, it says supper's over. They already had their lamb chops. They already had their leg of lamb. They already had whatever roast they want of the lamb. 
or the fry or the, however they cooked it. I'm not a chef. So we know that between the Passover meal and the Garden of Gethsemane, remember this, there's five books and five chapters in the book of John that Jesus taught. Now, John teaches it in a little bit brighter light or a little bit blows it up a little bit more and I think he does that because the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they include a few things and throw out some tidbits about what happened there. A lot of times they're interested in teaching other things or going the other directions or, or whatever but there are related scriptures in other Matthew, Mark and Luke that relate, re, re, tie all this together if you would but the point being John wanted to make sure we got a lot of this stuff taken care of. Now, what, why would you think John would be so interested in writing this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as to what really took place when Jesus was on earth? Um, when he reads, if you would, Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel that was written in about A.D. 50 to 60. John's writing his gospel A.D. 96. He's writing it about 40 years later. Now he's read their gospels and he was there. And I think he's saying, wonder why Matthew didn't mention this. I think this was important. I remember it. Wonder why Mark didn't mention it. Or Luke. Why didn't they write this stuff down? When Luke's defense, Luke wasn't there. Luke learned it from studying under. Matthew, Mark, and even Paul. All right, years later. Okay? He wasn't personally there. And as they write these things, as they wrote them down and put it together, John's coming along and saying, wait a minute, you guys left out quite a bit of stuff. I think it's important. Now, in your older years, you probably are probably thinking, oh, they left out a lot of details that if they knew them would help them get through what they need to get through. So here we go. In chapter 2, the devil now gets into Judas Iscariot. How about that? Yeah. Well, I understand that. Amen. So, uh, he knows that, Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. I can tell you, as a pastor, I know how the devil does that. Amen. I know that there are people, trust me, that have walked with God. I'm not even doubting their salvation. But have come to the place where they've decided maybe this is not the right way or the devil tells them, what in the world are you listening to that dude for? You are smarter than him. He don't know what he's talking about. You need to do something different with your life. They may have walked with uh, God for quite a few years, enjoyed the fellowship right amongst us, and yet today, they're somewhere else. While they were here, they probably said, Oh, Brother Dude, what a fantastic pastor. What a great preacher he is. Ask them today. They'll give you a different story. Amen? So I know how that works. I only say that to say to you, Be careful. You just might be the next one on Satan's list to try to get in your heart and drag you away so that you too will say, oh, that brother dude was great at one time. Now I don't know what happened to him. I haven't changed. Amen. And I can tell you this, if you're not as close to God as you used to be, guess who moved? All right. So we can understand the thinking, if you would, in how the devil can work through a guy like Judas Iscariot. So then in verse 3, let me read verse 3 one more time. You ready for this? 
Jesus knowing. Jesus knowing. Jesus knowing. Do you get that? The devil didn't fool him. Judas didn't fool him. Jesus knew it all along. No, 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 no. Jesus knew. Oh, yeah. He knows the devil pretty well. He knows those who the devil is trying to influence over them and get into their heart. He knows those that only show up to put on a show before the others, but they really have a different agenda. Jesus knows all that. He's got that covered. He knows what's going down. You're not fooling him. Jesus knows what God has given him to do. The scripture says he's got to do all things. Huh. And Jesus knows that the eternal things are the main things. And we need to stay focused on them while we do God's service on earth and for others. Jesus knows where he came from and where he wants to go back to as soon as his life here on earth is over. Isn't that something? Now think about it. But what happens when you pass away to your soul? It departs from the flesh, right? We know everybody knows that, right? I don't have to prove that to you, do I? Because I can always grab you by the throat and prove it to you if you want me to. Your soul disappears. So when Jesus died on the cross, where did his soul go? Ah, he said, today I'll be with you in paradise. Well, how about that? That's what he said to the thief on the cross, right? So when they put Jesus' body in the tomb, where was his soul? Wasn't in the tomb, was it? It had already been separated. They put the stone there to keep the body there, not to keep his soul there. Jesus knew there's two different things that need to be handled, the flesh and the spirit. Now, a lot of people argue over who moved the stone so that the girls coming down, Martha and all of them, coming down to anoint his body could get in the tomb. And as the scriptures kind of lean towards an angel, hey, Jesus may have moved it himself. You see, he made his need to say, hey, I need to get back in that body, in there, so I got to get the stone out of the way so that when I get in that body, I can come back out. Huh? What did he say to Lazarus when he, before he raised Lazarus from the dead? When they got to the cave that he was in, or the tomb, what did he say to him? Remove the stone. Why? Well, if I call him from back to life, his spirit's got to go back into that body and come walking back out. If the stone's there, he's been there four days, he's probably not strong enough to move that rock after being on a diet for four days. Amen? So the stone has to be moved to get those bodies out of the tomb. Well, Jesus knew that as well as anybody. And he's thinking ahead and getting things prepared, if you would. So he knows that his time here is running out. And he's got a lot to teach his students. The word disciple means follower or student. Did you know that? See what you're learning? All right. So, now that dinner's over, now that the devil has come into the meeting house, now that everybody uh, is gathered around and paying attention, lesson number one, feet washing. From verse 4 to verse 17, I'm not going to read it. You read that. If you read it carefully, pay attention to everything that it says in that, and then can come back to me and say, ah, feet washing is not important. I want to check your pulse. There's got to be something wrong with that situation. Amen? 
So from verse 4 to 17, take time to, to do it. Then you'll know more about the when, the where, and the why that we're asking going into this. So read those uh, 14 scriptures and think about what they're supposed to mean has nothing to do with dirty feet. He didn't do it because her feet were dirty. It has nothing to do with that. He didn't do it. He didn't wash their feet because it was a custom. And we got to say, stay to the strict custom. It was a custom. Jesus wouldn't have been washing the feet. They would have had a servant of the household washing the feet as you entered in. Right? So it's not a custom. It's not because their feet were dirty. Matter of fact, he had to argue with Peter over that. You'll read that in those 14 verses if you read it uh, as you study that. But what he did need to know was uh, we need to understand what I'm trying to teach you in this last few hours of my life. Amen? So if all you think is it was a custom or it was because their feet was dirty, you just missed lesson number one. All right? Let me just say this. If the devil's in your heart, feet washing won't be on your mind. You'll never consider it. Judas Iscariot never thought. He was only there to get his feet washed. Amen? Number two. If you only see it as physical, you'll be in the same category as Peter was. Now you read it, you'll, you'll understand. I'm not going to take time to do it because we have taught this. Well, I'm pastor for 17 years now, so I know I've taught it 17 times or more. Uh, we do it once a year at least. Uh, so, um, but number three, if you understand Jesus' viewpoint, you can find that in verse 17. He says, if you know, if you know, if you know these things, happy are ye if you do them. Amen? Does that register with anybody? Huh? Do you want to be happy? Or you want to do things that will make you happy? Amen. You think, well, I'll wash feet. That will make that person happy that I'm washing their feet. <laughs> Ain't got nothing to do with their feet. It's whether you're happy or not in being a servant to someone else. That's what Jesus is teaching. So, I got to tell you, we know that there are some Christians that reject the doctrine of feet washing. They think if you want to be a servant to somebody, why don't you just buy them a bag of groceries or fill up their tank with gas or mow their yard for them or take out the trash for them. Well, do those things. Those are good. That doesn't mean it's a substitute for feet washing. Amen? Now, I want you to understand the devil's in their heart. They'll be thinking about it as physical. Or they'll just be too proud of themselves to say, you ain't going to catch me washing nobody's feet. And yes, believe it or not, it's a doctrine of the word of God that Jesus left for his church to follow. What's a doctrine? A doctrine is a teaching that is a guideline for us to follow and do on the basis that the scriptures say to do it. Amen? What does it take to make it a doctrine? Well, Jesus said to do it. Jesus and his disciples did it, and it was carried on in the first century by those that built the church that Jesus came to build as part of the work in the church. Those three things make it a doctrine. So uh, the disciples passed it on to the church as a necessary practice because I got to tell you something. If there's two things the church really needs to work on, it's humility and servanthood. And the feet washing will teach you both of them 
in the best way the Lord knew how to teach it. Amen? All right. He didn't say, make sure you take the trash out for your neighbor. That'd be nice. And you'd have to be humble and, and be a servant to do that. That's not what he said. He taught us we need to wash one another's feet. Lesson number two in the upper room. Jesus wanted to teach. We call it the Lord's Supper. Or sometimes we call it the communion. Some churches call it Eucharist. There's all kinds of names for it, but it's where he took the cup and the bread and he blessed it and gave it to his disciples to observe it. Now, I want you to understand something. If you're reading in John's gospel, you won't find the Lord's Supper there after the feet washing service. But guess what? If you're going to read and get your pencil and paper out, Matthew 26, 26 to 29, Mark 14, 22 to 25, and Luke 22, 19 to 20, you'll find that Jesus made it uh, a doctrine and all three of those guys wrote it down. So when John gets to this part of telling his gospel narrative of what he experienced walking with Christ, he didn't even consider the Lord's Supper. Didn't even put it in there. He didn't need to. Y'all had three people that verified it. And they verified it that it took place. When? When the Passover meal was over. When Judas had already been Influenced by the devil. The devil entered in Judas's heart. All the other uh, gospels include that. So we know where it took place, when it took place, how it took place, and we as a church observe it in that fashion or in that scenario of settings. The other three uh, gospels didn't teach the feet washing, but John does. So in careful study of all four of the Gospels about this time in the upper room brings us to the conclusion that John's more interested in what we might say filling in the gaps that the other Gospel writers kind of skimmed over. They, they hit the high spot when they talked about the uh, Lord's Supper as a matter of fact, if you want to read in Luke, the 24th chapter, about the two guys that after Jesus rose from the dead was on the road to Emmaus, and a guy comes walking up to him and says, How you doing, guys? Well, they're so downhearted. They're so upset. They're kicking stones. They're not even walking where they're going. They're not paying attention to nothing. Now ah, we're going to Emmaus. Man, it's, this has just been a terrible week. I can't believe what we just saw and what we just witnessed in Jerusalem. And the guy walking and said, what are you talking about? Oh, you know, Jesus. They killed him for no reason and he didn't deserve it. And it's, oh. And so then Jesus, they didn't know it was him. He starts teaching them. Starts with the Old Testament and Moses and teaches them right along while they're walking to Emmaus. It's only a few miles down the road. And they finally get to their destination, leaving the Passover behind, because that was last week, going home, stopping Emmaus just to get a little snack before they went any further. So they stop there. They go in, and Jesus acts like he's just going to keep going. And they, oh, no, 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 come on in. Talk to us some more about what you know about Scripture or what you know about the Old Testament. And so they go in there, and they set some bread in that cup in front of him, and Jesus says, hold on a minute. We've got to say grace. He prays over the cup, prays over the bread, and the scripture says, their eyes were open. And Jesus disappears right out of their sight. So that what do they do? They turn right around and beat foot right back to Jerusalem, knowing that the other disciples are still in the upper room. And when they get there, out of breath, panting and carrying on, said, you ain't going to believe what happened to us going to Emmaus. We had to get back here and tell you about it. I think we ran into Jesus along the way. 
I think he's alive. I think he's got some stuff to tell us. We need to make room for him. And guess what happens in the upper room? He just comes on in. Doors and windows locked. He just comes right on in and says, Peace be unto you. Hi, guys. Got anything to eat? Huh. There you go. All right. That's it. I'm just getting off the subject a little bit. So we've got to be careful that we study all the Gospels, all four of them, put the pieces of the puzzle together to understand the upper room experience and know those doctrines that were taught that the church should still be observing. Also, we can understand that all four of the Gospels, the betrayal of Jesus is listed in them all. And it's where Judas Iscariot is mentioned. Uh, some uh, is before the communion service and one is after the communion service. And we don't put that in a timeline per se, but we know how those things happened and what was needed for those things to happen that it looks to me like, and you can disagree if you want, that the way it happened, Jesus washed their feet and then they had Lord's Supper and then Jesus announced to Judas, I got your number. Now we're going to get to that here in just a minute. That's the last thing I want to bring to you this morning. Well, I don't know if it is or not, but we'll, we'll see how it goes from here. Okay? Now, with feet washing and Lord's Supper in all their minds in the rearview mirror now in the upper room, John 13 and 18 says, I speak not of all of you. I wonder who he's speaking to. I'm not talking about you necessarily. Have you ever heard me say that? I know Christians that say, now I'm not talking about you people. I'm not talking about you here at Faith Christian. Oh, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I want you to know I love you, and I want to talk about somebody that ain't here. I want to use them as an example. Amen? Well, maybe the Holy Spirit wants to well, we'll just let that lie. But he says to them, I speak not of you all. And of course, we, reading what he said, know who he was talking about. Amen? So in verse, I'm not speaking to y'all, because I know whom I've chosen, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. What's that mean? What does lifting up his heel against me mean? Well, let me read it to you from the everyday. All right? In verse 18, it says, I'm not talking about all of you. I know those whom I've chosen. But this is to bring about what the scripture said. The man who ate my bread or ate at my table has turned against me In the King James, he said he lifted up his heel. What does it say about the serpent in the Garden of Eden? About the serpent? He's going to bruise his heel. Someone that's working against you, it's a saying, it's an understood interpretation that they lifted up their heel against you. Or their, what did he say here? Did he... I'm doing this about what the scripture says. The man who ate my table has turned against me. He's got a different agenda. There's somebody in this room that's not following the same agenda I am. That's what Jesus is saying. As a matter of fact, there was two people in there. Judas and the devil he was trying to follow. Amen? Jesus recognized him. So, um, I'm thinking... He did it in such a way that it was pretty much a discreet way of doing things but, uh, that, as to what he's saying here. All right. So if he's lifted up his heel, uh, we know that he means he's turned against him. Now, he has all 12 of the disciples' undivided attention. When he said, there's somebody that ate bread at this very table that's working against me. 
Hmm. They thought, with the meal being over, it's time to head to the Mount of Olives and get some sleep. And ain't nobody moving now. They want to know who's against Jesus. No one's tired. Their eyes are wide open now. And they want to know, the scripture says, is it I? Am I the one? They probably all looked around and thought, is he talking about me? I mean, there's only 12 of them. They had no idea what Judas had been up to. Amen. They thought he was just out doing what he's supposed to be doing as one of the disciples, as the treasurer of the church, out buying food for the poor, out getting necessities for their trips home. After the past, they didn't know what he had been doing. They didn't know he was out there conniving against Jesus. But look at verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said. Now, how can you tell when somebody's troubled in their spirit? I can look on your face and tell when you're troubled. Huh. And I'm not even as smart as Jesus. I don't even have a degree in psychology. But if you've got something on your mind that's eating you up, I pretty much can pick up on that. I'll even maybe ask you, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about? What are you troubled over? What's going on? Anything I can do to help you? I don't know what I would say. Holy Spirit gives me what to say when it's time to say it. It's the way I believe the scripture is written. Amen? But they could look at Jesus and say, he's, he's troubled in his spirit. And Jesus went on to say, Verily, verily. You ever heard him say verily, verily before? Well, of course you have. And when did he say it? When something was really important, he used those words to get it, uh, their full attention on what he was going to say. These guys don't know who he's talking about, but when he says, verily, verily, their uh, antennas went up, and they're paying attention to everything he's going to say from then on. I say unto you, one of you is going to betray me. Whoa! That didn't fall on deaf ears. There was 24 ears in that room that heard him. They, oh, and even Judas. Uh-oh, my gig's up. You think he's going to embarrass me? Man, if he tells them what I've already done, and I know he knows now, he's already said he knows. If he tells the other 11, they'll beat me to a pulp before I can get to the door. Those guys, I tell you, Clean feet and all, they're going to stomp on me. Amen? No, that's not what Jesus is out to do in his final hours. He says, one of you is out to betray me. Of course, we see in verse number 22, the disciples, even including Judas, start wondering, who? Who's going to do that? Which one? Amen? I can picture... In verse number 23, Jesus is there in the room, and Peter and John's there. Of course, they were the ones that he sent to set the room up. Remember last Sunday? They found the guy with the water pitcher. They're the ones that set the room up. They're the ones that put the name tags on every chair around the table, if you would. Okay? They picked out the best seat. Where would the best seat be? The one next to Jesus. And John was the one next to Jesus, and Peter was right beside him, one away from Jesus at the table. <laughs> now, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Who is that? In John's writing, we know that's John. John didn't say, I was the one there, and Jesus loved me the most. That's not very humble, is it? Amen? But he put it in there so that we know John was the one next to Jesus at the dinner table. 
And when Jesus gave this announcement out, John probably even said, I don't know who it is. He's looking around at everybody. What's going on? Peter gives him one of those elbows in the ribs like your wife gives you when you say something wrong at the restaurant. Right? John, hey, hey, ask him. Ask him which one. So Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him. I, I use the elbow illustration. How do you interpret beckon? Psst, 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 John, ask him. That's what he beckoning means, I guess. He got John's attention somehow to get John to get him to ask the question. That he should ask who it should be of whom he was speaking or he spake. Who's, John, who's Jesus talking about, John? Get it out of him. You're right there. Get his attention. Who are you talking about, Jesus? Hey. Then he lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Hey, Lord, who are you talking about? I, don't, I see him kind of whispering in his ear. I don't see him going, Hey, who are you around at? I don't see it that way. I see him being trying to slide it because you never know. The answer could have come back, why it's you, John, or it's you, Peter. I don't know. They, they don't know. They don't know the insight that Jesus has about his betrayal. They don't know what's going on, but they need to know. They need to look. Amen. And I believe Jesus had such a way of doing that. He did it so discreetly that even Judas knew he was not exposed as the one that's going to betray Christ in front of the other 11. So what he said to them, I'll tell you who it is, guys. Now all ears are lit up, right? It's the one that I dipped the bread in the sop and gave it to you to eat. Now, I've talked about that before, but the sop is just a gravy or a sauce type something, and when they ate, they just broke off a piece of bread, dipped it down in it like you would chips and salsa, and ate it. Right? And he's got the bread in front of him because when the bread comes out, it's all one loaf. Amen. This is the best thing before sliced bread. Right? So he takes and breaks it off. He dips it in the sop. Here's your piece. Here's your piece. Here's your piece. Now, he says, it's the one that I gave the bread to after I dipped it in the salt. Sop. Guess what? He then did that with all of them all 12 of them, ate the bread and sop that Jesus broke off and handed to them. That didn't even answer the question, did it? But it narrowed it down. Now we're down to 12. <laughs> Amen. So in that, they start examining. Which, which one did he mean? And they started thinking, uh, he looked kind of funny when he handed it to Matthew. Amen. Don't you think he looked kind of funny when he handed it to Simon? Oh, I mean, I don't know. This probably stirred up more trouble than he could. But it covered for Judas Iscariot. You know that the disciples, the way I read this, never knew that Judas was the one he was talking about or the one that was going to betray him until he showed up into the garden five chapters later in the Gospel of John. How about that stuff? Well, he's pretty discreet if he wants to be. So... When the Holy Spirit wants to point out somebody, he knows how to do it. But if uh, they want to keep it, if you would, revealed from the rest of the brethren, if you would, they can. Can I tell you something? I know why there are some people that don't come to church here. And you don't know who I'm talking about. And I would never tell you in a million years, but I know things about people that my wife doesn't even know. And I'm not going to tell her. Amen? Because I'm not out to drag somebody through the mud. I'm praying that they'll get straightened out. I'd like to fill one of the, we got too many empty seats on this side. We've got to fill them up. Amen? I'm praying that they'll come back. I'm praying it'll work out. And this has been going on for me for 47 years. Amen? I even know a guy here that used to even be. A pastor that you don't even know anything about. 
some of the things that if I told him, told on him, he'd probably have to do jail time. Huh. I ain't going to tell nobody. I'd rather see him get his life. And I, I think he probably has tried to settle it with, with the Lord. I think he's probably prayed and asked for forgiveness. And I think if Jesus forgives him, I should too. But still, I got to tell you, it, I can't get it to drop out back there because it's still stuck. Because he done some awful things in the church and to the church before he left being part of the church. But I'm glad he's back. He's not here, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. I'm just like Jesus. I'm not talking to all of you. <laughs> all right? But here in verse number 27, says, It's he who I've given the sop. And when he dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Simon. But that wasn't in their minds anything different than when he gave it to this one, that one, the other one, and down the line he went. But the devil knew who he was talking about, and the devil knew he was uncovered. So the devil doesn't try to jump up and take over anybody else at that table because Jesus has got his number. And it says here, again, this was done in such a manner that they all saw it, but none of them could get a grasp on what was going on to the full extent that it was going on. So Jesus says to us, Judas Iscariot, all right, Judas, uh, verse 28, no man at the table knew for what a tent he walked. So some of them thought when Jesus told him in verse 27, what you're going to do, do it quickly. That's in red letters in your Bible in case you didn't know. Jesus tells Judas, Okay, go do it. Do it now. They didn't know what he was going to do. Now, he had just told them that he was going to be betrayed. They, didn't, they couldn't put two and two together to save their life. You know why? When you got a guilty conscience, it's hard to understand anybody else's problems. Amen? All those guys knew they hadn't been 100% spit clean and shined and done the things that God wanted them to do. So Jesus says to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. Again, he dismissed Judas Iscariot from the room, and yet, verse 28 says, they didn't know why he left. Oh, they had some assumptions. He's going to go buy some food for the poor. He's going to go buy some supplies because he's got the money. He's going to go do all that, right? They didn't know why he was leaving the room, but as he left, they understood Jesus had made things clear. Verse 29 and 30, Judas was exiting the room to betray Jesus, and yet no one in the room picked up on it. No one was aware of it. They didn't understand it. They didn't fully get it. And they had several thoughts about the way Judas was leaving, but they didn't say a word to anybody. Some of them may have dismissed the thought that Jesus said uh, moments earlier that uh, had come to pass right before their very eyes, and they may have wondered. I wonder who's next to get the sop. They may have thought it that way. Well, yeah, he gave it to Judas a sop, but he had somewhere to go to do something for the group. He's going out to do a great work. Let him go. Who's next to get the sop, Jesus? Well, that's not it. Look, uh, notice the last line in verse 30. It says, when Judas went out, it was night. Does that ring a bell? To help us understand the under uh, the uh, timeline of the upper room, we know now it's after dinner, and actually the sun has now gone down. 
It is night. Actually, to be real specific about it, in the Jews' day-night scenario, it took place at the 6 o'clock hour. So morning began at 6 a.m., or day began at 6 a.m., night began at 6 p.m. So if you want to put that in your timeline of thinking as to how he looked, he said, and it went out, it was night. So it was after 6 p.m. They'd already had dinner. <laughs> that help you with the type timeline? It should. Amen. But Judas Iscariot, uh, it meant something entirely different to him. It was night. He knew what was in his heart against his Lord. That will bring night on anybody's spirit that is doing something that Judas Iscariot was doing to Jesus. Saints, be careful of the night. Because in the nighttime, bad things happen in people's spiritual life. Amen? It used to be. It's not anymore. I don't know if it is or not. They used to have, and I remember reading this from like 30 years ago, it used to be that almost 90% of crimes that were committed in America happened in the dark. That ain't even close to the case anymore. It could be 12 noon and somebody will walk right up on your porch and steal your box that Amazon just dropped off with your new pajamas in it. They don't care. Dark and light means nothing to a heart that's sold out to sin. Amen? Judas learned a lesson back in his day because he was trying to cover up what he was doing. And the night helped him cover it up. So one thing Judas remembered was that Jesus said, it won't be easy, but it'll be worth it. And he didn't mean that it's going to be easy and to betray Jesus, but the night will make it even easier. So we need to understand when Jesus is speaking to us, we need to do what he's calling us to do because it's not going to be easy, just worth it. Let us stand.